to the Econ Minute podcast. Listener download from econminute.com and under the link that says podcast. I'm Eric Fruits and I'm an economist based in Portland, Oregon. My day job is consulting and expert testimony. If you need an economist, expert witness, or even a speaker at your next event, you can contact me through the econminute.com website. Or with a name like Fruits, I'm also just about the easiest person in the world to find on Google. This week's podcast looks at how gridlock could be good for state budgets and good for economic growth. Then, we'll check out new research suggesting that Medicare's expansion into prescription drug benefits has caused a boom in painkiller abuse. On the job front, we'll examine new evidence that referral-based hiring is better for business and better for workers than the traditional methods of sifting through stacks of resumes and applications. We'll wrap things up with commentary on two very different views of how free speech works in a world of free markets. I hope you enjoy the next few minutes of the Econ Minute podcast. Can gridlock be good for government? New research suggests that gridlock can be good for state government budgets. First, let's back up a little bit. Ask a politician what the goal of their party is, and they will tell you. They want to dominate government. Democrats and Republicans alike would like nothing more than to totally eliminate the other party from the legislature so that they can dominate and carry out their agenda. And that may be good for the party, but new research says that's bad for the budget. A paper published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics finds that political competition reduces overspending by state legislatures. The authors develop a model of lawmakers, some of whom have a bias for overspending. In other words, these politicians want to boost current spending and put off any spending cuts. Their model predicts that when unanimity is anticipated, for example, under one-party rule, lawmakers give in to the temptation to overspend. On the one hand, if unanimous support for high spending is, is expected in future sessions, politicians know that low spending today cannot and will not stop policymakers from raising spending in the future. Now, on the other hand, if unanimous support for low spending in future sessions is expected, lawmakers today can spend more knowing that future politicos will clean up their mess. Now, this seems to cross party lines. Remember, it was the Republican-dominated Congress that pushed the infamous bridge to nowhere. But the researchers argue, as a legislature gets closer to a 50-50 split of those who are fiscally responsible and those who just want to spend and spend and spend, then the possibility of gridlock increases. And with gridlock, the status quo prevails, which means things stay the same. And spending will not increase as much as the high spenders would like. In that way, political competition actually leads to fiscal responsibility. Now, the authors provide a model, but they don't provide any data to back up their model. But earlier research seems to be consistent with what they're saying. For example, statistical analysis published in the Review of Economic Studies in 2010 finds that increases in political competition are associated with lower tax revenues as a share of state personal income. That means that residents in those states with greater political competition actually have more disposable income. The study also found that greater competition led to a higher level of infrastructure spending by state governments. And infrastructure spending is what really gets the economy moving. They also found that states with greater political competition had a higher probability that the state uses a right-to-work law, which makes it easier for employers to hire workers and easier for job seekers to get work. Thus, 
there is some evidence that greater political competition is associated with higher growth rates of per-person income and possibly even budget stability. So, bottom line, competition. It's good for business, it's good for government, and it's good for consumers. Economists say if you want more of something, subsidize it. But sometimes you get more of the bad along with more of the good. Medicare's expansion into prescription drug coverage is a lesson in unintended but not entirely unanticipated consequences. Opioids are painkillers like Vicodin and Oxycontin, and opioid abuse has increased hugely since 1999. In this case, abuse is measured by substance abuse treatment admissions and deaths involving such painkillers. These drug-related deaths spiked by 20% between 2005 and 2006. Now, that's important. 20% between 2005 and 2006. 2006 happens to be the time that Medicare Part D added a prescription drug benefit making such painkillers much cheaper for seniors. Now, recent research published by the National Bureau of Economic Research examines whether the introduction of the Medicare Prescription Drug Benefit Program in 2006 may have contributed to the increase in prescription drug abuse by expanding access to these drugs among the elderly. Using data from the Drug Enforcement Agency, the researchers find painkiller distribution increased faster in states with a larger fraction of its population impacted by Part D. They also find that this relative increase in opioid distribution resulted in increases in painkiller-related substance abuse treatment admissions. Interestingly, these states experienced significant growth in opioid abuse among both the 65 and older population as well as the under-65 population, even those under-65, were not directly impacted by the implication, by the implementation of Medicare Part D. Now, the authors don't provide much of an explanation for this observation, but maybe, just maybe, the older folks are engaging in a bit of prescription pill arbitrage. They get their painkillers at a low price, being subsidized by Uncle Sam, and then they sell them to other people at a higher price. In fact, last year, the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services noted what they called questionable use of HIV drugs, and those HIV drugs include painkillers. The Inspector General concluded that while the utilization may be legitimate, the patterns warranted further scrutiny. They said that the patterns may indicate that a beneficiary is receiving inappropriate drugs and diverting them for sale to what they called the black market. A spokesman for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has said that the agency takes the problem seriously and is taking steps to protect Medicare beneficiaries and the trust fund. But nevertheless, we're seeing that there is some leakage into the wider population and growing abuse and painkillers, all because we've decided to subsidize it. When I started Econ Minute, I added a page of job postings, and I have to admit, it's a pretty awesome page of job postings. It collects a bunch of job postings in economics from a variety of different sources and puts them on the page, all free, of course, and so feel free to use them. But what we're finding out now is that firms often use referrals from existing employees to hire new workers. About 50% of U.S. jobs are found through the informal referral networks, and about 70% of firms have programs encouraging referral-based hiring. In fact, one could probably argue that the social networking site LinkedIn is mostly a referral-based job board only it has about 250 million users. Although referral-based hiring has boomed in recent years, there's little quantitative, meaning statistical, evidence that reliance on referrals is any better or any worse 
than traditional methods of hiring. Recently published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics is new research that finds measurable benefits of referral-based hiring. In fact, they find that applicants who are hired through referrals are more likely to be hired and more likely to accept offers, even though the referrals and non-referrals have similar skills. The research also finds that referred workers tend to have similar productivity than those that don't get the referral, but the referred workers, at least in trucking, have lower accident rates, and in high tech, the referred workers tend to have more patents. They also find that referred workers are substantially less likely to quit and, good for the worker, earn slightly higher wages than those that aren't hired through a referral. In two industries they looked at call centers and trucking, where worker-level profits can be calculated, they found that referred workers yield substantially higher profits per worker than the non-referred workers. And they said that these profit differences are driven by lower turnover and lower recruiting costs. So if businesses want better employees and workers want better jobs, it may be time to ditch the job board, even if it's the best job board out there, and hit up the modern version of the Rolodex and try to get a referral. Within the space of a week, I came across two commentaries that were published. And these two commentaries are seem to be on different issues, but they're actually very closely related. And put them together, and they really highlight the difference in ideas that some people have about how democracy and markets work, and really how fragile our freedom of speech can be. In the first article, Robert Reich, the former labor secretary under President Clinton, complains that what he calls big money folks won't open up their wallets for him. He notes that a college president invited to give him a lecture that the school's board of trustees would be attending. Now, according to Reich, the president requested that he would appreciate it if Reich didn't criticize Wall Street, because several of the trustees were investment bankers. Reich then relates the story of a nonprofit group that's devoted to voting rights and decided that it would not launch a campaign against big money in politics for fear of alienating that group's wealthy donors. He wraps up his op-ed by suggesting that museums of science and natural history are being influenced by energy companies and, of course, naturally, the Koch brothers. Reich argues that this has become, uh, this is because such institutions don't want to say, do what he says, bite the hands that feed them. Now, as the saying goes, he who pays the piper calls the tune. Yet Reich seems surprised and, in fact, outraged that people won't pay for a tune that they don't want to hear. Now, a few days after Reich's piece made the rounds, the Wall Street Journal published an op-ed by a Pepperdine professor, Pete Peterson, regarding a Democratic congressman's abusive campaign against seven academics who have challenged some of the conventional wisdom regarding climate change. He notes that the congressman's office arranged additional pressure by notifying national and local media that the professors were under, quote, investigation, unquote. And on the day the letters went out, the Washington Post had a headline that said, House Dems, did big oil seek to sway scientists in the climate debate? Now, the congressman's campaign is a stark contrast to Reich's complaints about what he calls big money donors. Reich is upset that donors won't financially support a message that they disagree with. But if you think about it, that's really just a fundamental principle of free speech and a pretty clear demonstration that money is speech. In contrast, the congressman is abusing the power of his office in an attempt to stifle speech that he disagrees with. So in the end, it seems that in the marketplace of ideas, the soft power of financial support is much superior to the harsh power of coercion.
That's it for this week's Econ Minute podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed putting it together. And remember, if you need an economist, expert witness, or even a speaker at your next event, you can contact me through the econminute.com website. Hope to see you next week.